We're going to look at the book of Matthew, and as always, we're going to try and put it back into its proper context. The reason is we read our Bibles from our own life experience, from a 20th century perspective, and in, indeed to a degree that we need to do that. We need to look at the teachings of the Messiah and apply them to our lives. And that application of the instructions of Yeshua to our lives will be different than what it was for the disciples. However, that said, we first have to put those words back into the context that they were written in. And so that we can understand what was meant. And then we can see how to apply them to our lives. Let me give you a quick example of what I mean. Let's look at the book of Mark because we just finished uh, the book of Mark, a quick run through the gospel of Mark. And let's take a verse and let's take it completely out of context to start out with. Let's start with Mark chapter 7 and verse 17. It says, after he had left the crowd, he entered the house and his disciples asked him about a parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that anything that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Yeshua declared all foods clean. And so here we have a verse that says Yeshua declared all foods clean. Out of context. Let's see what happens to this verse when we take it completely out of context and put it elsewhere. If we read this with our 20th century eyes in the context of our own culture... When we go to the food store, there's beef, there's pork in the meat case. And so to us, it's all food. It's in the food store. Because pork is now food for us, we go away from this passage thinking Yeshua just declared pig clean to eat. And that has Yeshua changed the requirements of the Torah. It means he just changed the requirements of Torah. And let's forget the argument that this is a parenthetical statement that doesn't occur in all manuscripts. But for the moment, let's concede that this is what Mark said and wrote. Because if, if we think of Mark sitting down and writing this, we have to remember when Mark thinks of food, pig would have never come to his mind as being food. Because they didn't eat pig. It was not food to them. There was no pig in the markets of Israel. It was forbidden to even raise them there. Let's put it into a different culture and think of it this way. If someone says to you in Africa, and you were to read this passage or they were to read it to you in the context of his culture and the food of his market, he would determine maybe that you just said monkey was clean to eat. Because in some places, monkey is food. Or another place, they might think lizards were now clean to eat because lizards are food. I mean, you could take this to the ridiculous. And you could say to a, if it was read to a cannibal, he would think people are good to eat because that was food to them. Right? But the fact is, when we put it back into its proper culture, in writing, we come up with a different conclusion about food. And if we look at the passage even farther, we'll find that indeed the passage isn't even about food. It's about washing hands. The Torah teaches that if you touch something 
clean with something unclean, you render the clean thing unclean. And the Pharisees confronted Yeshua in verse 5 of chapter 7 with this. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Yeshua, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? You see, if you put it back into the proper context, it's not even about food. It's about a ceremonial washing of hands and touching clean food with unclean hands. Now, what you do with that for your own life is up to you and the Spirit of God. But before you can render a decision about what foods you should eat, you should at least understand the passage correctly. You have to come to a complete and accurate, you have to have complete and accurate information before making the decision for your life. And that's the way I want to understand the book of Matthew. I want to understand it correctly. And so if we're going to do that, then we have to put it back into the proper culture in which it was written. Another misconception for the average reader of the Gospels, because the way our Bibles are organized, we think Matthew is the very first to write down his Gospel. The fact is, this Gospel wasn't written until 80 or 90 Common Era. The book of Mark, which is now considered one of the earliest, is written around 60 or 70 Common Era. Do you know what that means? That means all of Paul's writings were written down before the Gospels were written down. It means that Paul probably never read one of these Gospels because they weren't written down until after he'd passed. He might have seen some of the stories written down and for sure he'd heard Yeshua's teachings recounted to him from one of the other disciples from memory. But because he was martyred before they were written, he never read a gospel. So when you read statements by Paul that say things like this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or you read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching. He's referring to the Hebrew Bible because there were no messianic writings yet. Do you see the importance of context? Not only that, but we have to understand the idioms of the day. The culture. You'll never understand the Bible unless you understand these things. As long as we read it with our modern understanding, we'll never really understand what's written there. It's still valuable, don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful account of Yeshua's life and we can apply meaning to it. But if we want to see the complete beauty of the canvas of Yeshua's life and the teachings, we have to remove the years of grime and dirt that are covering the brilliance of the colors and the brush strokes. Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy and the birth of Yeshua which should tell us that more than likely, very early on, the legitimacy of Yeshua's birth was in question. And he's addressing it. I mean, let's face facts. If you weren't a believer, and you lived in the first century, you weren't a believer, 
And you weren't one who, who witnessed the ministry of Yeshua. And you were sitting in a synagogue one day. And you had one person telling you that Yeshua was an illegitimate son of a Roman soldier conceived by Mary, by a Roman soldier. And you had another one come up to you and tell you, no, Yeshua was born of a virgin conceived of the Holy Spirit. Who are you going to believe? And we know that there were who opposed the good news of Yeshua. And this questionable birth would have certainly been fodder for them. So for sure we know that at the writing of Matthew's gospel, there were those who opposed Yeshua's messiahship and were pointing to the fact that Joseph found Mary with child before the consummation of the marriage, and they were calling him an illegitimate son. Another thing that points to this is we can see that, that uh, rejection in the Talmud. It places, it speaks of Mary as a harlot, who is conceived by a Roman soldier. And while the Talmud was written much later than the Gospel of Matthew, it certainly gives us an idea of the object objections that were circulating in the first century. And so Matthew, right away, he sets out to rectify this. The miraculous birth. Even the virgin was something that was foretold throughout Scripture... But as with most prophecies, you don't really see it until you can look back on it. Then you can see it clearly. With that in mind, let's read the very first verse of Matthew. He says this, This is the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Both of these men that Matthew traces Yeshua's lineage back to are pillars of the faith, yes? And yes, there are obvious reasons he would trace them back to David because he's trying to show Messiah, he's Messiah and King. But look at Abraham and ask, why would he include Abraham? Every descendant of David was descended from Abraham. And so why would he bother saying Abraham? You see, if Matthew were going to trace Yeshua's lineage to show his Messiahship, it would have been enough to say David. Because Messiah was to be the son of David. And like I said, every son of David can trace his lineage back to Matthew. So he must, or back to Abraham. So Matthew must be after something different here. He must be trying to show something else. So again, let's look at Abraham. Abraham's son Isaac, the son of a miraculous birth. Born to a mother in her 90s. When's the last time you saw a woman in her 90s give birth? It's unheard of. And we saw at Rosh Hashanah, it's not the only parallel to Isaac that we have with Messiah Yeshua. Isaac is an amazing picture of Messiah Yeshua and his death and his offering, in Abraham's offering of Isaac. And so Matthew more than likely wants his readers to reason that if God could open the womb of a woman beyond childbearing years, he can also open the womb of a virgin. And the point I'm trying to make here is that there are many reasons that Matthew opens the book this way. And we're going to explore some of those today and even next week. 
He begins with David because it's important to show that he is the son of David because of all the prophecies. There's another good reason that should be poignant to us as Messianic believers, and that is to show a lineage to these men because it shows that Messiah is not coming into the world to do something new. This isn't anything new. This is a continuation, a fulfillment of the promises of God to these men. Yeshua has come. He's the foundation. He's the substance of the promises that were made by God to these men. He's not one who's come to reject Israel, but he has come as one to redeem Israel and to restore Israel in right standing with God. He traces his back lineage back to Abraham to show that Messiah is the fulfillment of the covenant between the halves that was made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham and to his descendants and the descendants of Isaac that he would give them the land of Israel. He's the heir of the promise of chapter 12 in Genesis. Chapter 12 in verse 2 says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, he wants us to see that he's the heir of the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham, that all peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. He also wants us to go to chapter 17 and verse 19 where God, it says, and then God said, yes, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you and I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you this time next year. And when he finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. He traces his lineage back to Abraham to show that this is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. At Rosh Hashanah, we spoke of the offering of Isaac and how Abraham beheld behind, a thick, behind him a ram caught in a thicket. And we looked at that Hebrew word there. It can mean in the distance or it can mean in the future. And so Abraham literally beheld Messiah in the future, the ram who would take away the sins of the world. And John makes sure that we know that. In chapter 8 and verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. Abraham, in faith... As he and Isaac were walking up the mountain because he was told by God to offer his one and only son Isaac. As he walks up the mountain with Isaac and Isaac asks him, where's the lamb for the burnt offering, Father? He says, God himself will provide the lamb. Abraham saw and knew that there was one coming that God would provide himself that would take the place of Isaac. Finally, he traces his lineage back to Abraham to let the reader understand the continuity between Yeshua and the God of Israel. They're one and the same, as we read, and we read last week in Genesis chapter 18, verse 22. 
The men turned away and went to Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? You see, he wants us to understand that this Messiah will not judge the righteous and the wicked alike. Matthew wants his people, Israel, to connect the dots, folks. To understand that God is not doing something new here, but he's doing something very ancient. Something he planned from the very beginning. It's a plan he showed and promised Abraham. And one that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And if you believe with the same faith of Abraham that this Yeshua is the lamb offered for Isaac. If you believe that this is the one through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. If you believe it with the faith of Abraham, then you'll be one of those seated at the table with Abraham at a great feast. He traces his lineage back to David. To show he is this succession of the kings. He is the one, the Messiah and the king. The one that was spoken of to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In verse 12 it says, When your days are over and you rest with your father, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does no wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will be never taken away from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed from before him, when I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever and ever before me, and your throne will be established forever. This one promise is not something new. There's a continuity here. There's a continuance here. There's a fulfillment here. And he's saying to his Jewish brothers that Yeshua is the one you've been looking for. Think of it, folks. Here's Matthew as he compiles and writes his gospel. He's an old man. And the temple of God lies in ruins. The Romans are on the temple mount. And Matthew is saying to his Jewish brothers, look, things are bad. But guess what? The best is yet to come. God's promises have not failed. It is Yeshua who will build the temple. It is Yeshua who will build the house of God. This Yeshua whose throne will never end, he's the one that was promised to David. It's, it's all in the plan. It's been in the plan. I know he was put to death, but that's part of the ancient plan. Spoken to Abraham, this is the one. The lamb that was promised to Abraham. This is the one spoken of in David's prophetic songs. 
David the prophet spoke of these things as he sang songs. It was the pain of his son that David sang as he sang in the first person in Psalm 22 in verse, beginning with verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. There is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey with their open mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You will lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Do you see the continuity here? The promise to Abraham and Isaac shown to Abraham. He rejoiced to see Yeshua's day. This is the one that David sang of. It's the one in the loins of David who would suffer the shame and the humiliation. He's the one in the songs that suffers, fulfilling the promise God himself will provide the lamb, my son. It was also the confidence of his son that he sang as he, in Psalm 16, beginning with verse 8, we read, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. He wanted his Jewish brothers to draw the line, to connect the dots, to see that this was the son that David sang of, who would not be given over to decay, but would rise from the dead ensuring victory for all men who would, who would rest in his salvation. It was this song he sang of as he sang this victory psalm in 34, beginning with verse 18. When you ascend on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Praise to the Lord, to God, our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves, and from the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. How else and why else would David sing in the first person of these things if the one who would fulfill them was not in his loins? Yes, this Yeshua is the son of David, the one he sang of, that God promised would be king forever. Yes, he had to die just as David had sung in his song. And yes, he was raised just as David sang. And yes, he was the child of a miraculous birth as foretold in the life of Isaac and Sarah and Abraham. Matthew, in the context of the Torah and the prophets that these men knew so well, is drawing for these brothers of his a line connecting the dots to the great plan of God, to the mystery of God. And he does it in the very first sentence of his gospel. You know, I went through the Torah last year 
showing the Messiah in the Torah. We started with Genesis and went right on through. Each week, we saw where he was foreshadowed there, where he was prophesied there week after week, Parashah after Parashah, chapter after chapter of the Torah, finding Messiah Yeshua in the Torah every week. And people came to me and said, do you ever preach on the New Testament, the New Covenant Scriptures? Folks, I was preaching on the New Covenant Scriptures. (laughs) I was showing where those Scriptures' foundations lie. Showing the cornerstone of the covenant each week. Because there's a continuity here. There's a connectivity here. You see, there is a new covenant. But there is no New Testament or Old Testament. There's only one set of scriptures with many authors but one writer. One author. Many writers but one author. How do you understand the new covenant without understanding the covenant at Sinai? How can you understand the new covenant without Jeremiah chapter 31? This is the one the book is about. We have one God, one Messiah, and they are about restoring one nation, Israel. It is one book. And it's a book about how we're grafted into that one nation of Israel through the plan of God, through the sacrifice and the mercy and the compassion and the love of one son of God, the Messiah Yeshua. You see, the lineage of Matthew, you see, this message of Matthew, if we put it into the context of first century Jewish people, this, he's saying, is the one the Torah spoke of through Abraham. This is the one the Tanakh spoke of through the life of David. This is the heir of the promises. Here is the one who will bring peace to our lives and joy and prosperity to our nation. That's the first century context. That's what he's saying to his brothers. Now that we know that, what is he saying to us? What can we do with these words that he wrote in the first century to his Jewish brothers? What do they mean to us? And not just that, because these words, these words are timeless. Now that we know what he's saying to his first century Jewish people, now we can say, well, what do these opening verses mean to me and for me? Matthew's message to us is you cannot separate the Messiah from his Hebrew roots. You cannot separate him from the Torah and the prophets. You cannot separate his teachings and his sayings from their Hebrew roots, from the Torah, because they extend all the way back to David, to Abraham, to Isaac, and farther. Because Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Because this was the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent prophesied to Adam. He takes it back to Noah because this is the bow in the clouds. And when God sees him coming on the clouds of heaven, he'll not destroy the earth again. Even though it would be like it was in the days of Noah. You see, Messiah Yeshua is everywhere in the whole of the Bible. It's a book totally about him. 
And if you separate Matthew's words from their root, they'll no longer be life to you. But they'll be like a branch lying on the ground, separated from its root. Those words will start to wither without meaning, without purpose, without fruit. They'll be unrecognizable. And friends, that's why these precious words of Matthew and the Holy Spirit, it's what they become to many, just a withered branch. Matthew is doing in the opening verses the very much the same thing that John did in his opening verses. Listen to what John says in chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and with Him out nothing was made that has been made. In Him was the life, and that life was the light of people. The light that shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. By using a slightly different tact and different words, John is saying the same thing. He's saying, hey, this isn't anything new. This is an ancient and redemptive work of God planned from the very beginning with Messiah with him at the very beginning. He's not bringing something foreign, something new, but something that has been in the mind of God and spoken by God since the beginning through Abraham, through David. Because this Messiah was with God at creation. It's always been in the mind and the heart of God to send his son Yeshua into the world. These openings fit together to reveal this great truth of Messiah. He's the one foretold to Hava in the garden. Who is not the seed of a man, but the seed of a woman. He's not coming with something new, but he's with God at creation. He was with God at creation. He's the substance of the promises given to Noah, to Abraham. He was with God at Sinai in the giving of the Torah. He was in the loins of David. He was in the words of Isaiah who spoke of one who would be born of a virgin. And he's going to bring about the fulfillment of the promises of God. This is the Messiah that every mother thought of in Israel, if she gave birth to a son, maybe this will be the one who will redeem Israel. Matthew is using words in the lives of David and Abraham to convey to his readers that this is the promised one. Think of what it must have been like to be these apostles, having traveled with Messiah Yeshua, being convinced that he was the Messiah as they traveled with him, as they lived with him, as they watched him, spoke with and learned from him. They were convinced that he was the one who would bring victory to Israel. And then they witnessed his death and his burial. And think of the disappointment. The thing that everyone in Israel believed of the Messiah had slipped through their fingers once again. Rome had dashed their hopes by hanging Yeshua 
on a stake. We can see the despair in their hearts, in the hearts of the men on the road to Emmaus. We can see it in Mary's heart as she searches for Yeshua's body the day he rose from the dead. We can see it in the words of Thomas, unless I see and touch his wounds. And then think of the joy as he's raised from the dead and they realize he is the chosen one. Think of the joy they would have as they went to the temple and recited the Amidah. Blessed are you, Lord our God and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the great, mighty, and awesome God, God supreme who extends loving kindness and is master of all, who remembers the gracious deeds of our forefathers and who brings a redeemer with love to their children's children. For his name's sake, blessed are you, shield of Abraham. Think of the joy as the songs of David would come to life for them and they would see the prophecies given to Abraham coming to life within their grasp. Think of how they would have joyously tried to tell people that, hey, Yeshua had to die. He had to be raised from the dead. And then think of their disappointment again as they would have some not see and the sadness that they would feel as they maligned Messiah Yeshua with tales of infidelity and illegitimacy. Think of how they must have wondered, how are we ever going to convince those who would say that Yeshua is a bastard son of Mary, who Joseph had pity on? How are we going to convince them? How would they convince those who would say, didn't this Yeshua die? How's he going to overthrow Rome? He's dead. How can he free us from oppression? He's dead. You see, we have everything nicely spiritualized and compartmentalized. Yeshua's over here in the spiritual and here's life in the physical. But not so the first century Jew. They were looking for something a bit more tangible. And this is what is in Matthew's, Mark, Luke, John's mind as they write. How am I going to convey in this letter that this is the chosen one, the promised one, the anointed one? And so they all take us back to the beginning to tell us, yes, this is what was in the heart of God. This was what was in the songs of David. This is what was in the promises given to Abraham. And what Matthew is doing here is greater than just showing us a lineage to David or Abraham, but the continuity between them and the salvation that Yeshua secured for us. You know, Matthew ends his gospel the very much way, the same way he begins. Think of him as he sits writing with the temple, a distant memory, 10 or 20 years absent and had, those 10 or 20 years had probably erased its memory from his mind he sits writing in the midst of the despair of a nation lamenting along with his brothers he concludes his gospel this way in Matthew 28 and verse 16 then the 11 disciples went to Gilgal to the mountain where Yeshua had told them to go and when they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted 
And Yeshua came to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples of all Gentiles. Disciples of all Gentiles. That word means students. Immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And know that I am with you always, even till the end of the age. He tells his brothers, this is the Savior whom we've been looking for. God raised him, and he's with us. He ends the book in the way he began, by showing that this is David's son. He's the ruler. He's still with us. But we don't see how he's done this because we've separated Yeshua's words from their roots. We've separated Matthew's gospel from its context. But if we'd put them back into their proper context, as David erects the tabernacle to the Lord and brings the ark inside, listen to what we read in 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 1. And they brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent of David had it pitched for, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. And what does David say at the erecting of this tabernacle, at bringing the ark into the tabernacle? Listen to verse 23 of the same chapter. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim His salvation day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord. And most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. This is David's son. He's the rebuilder of David's fallen tent. This is the tent the nations of the earth may come to and find peace. But it's fallen down. He's the one that will rebuild it. That's why the disciples say this in Acts chapter 15 and verse 15. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After these things I will return. I will again rebuild the tent of David which has fallen. I will build its ruins. I will set it up so the rest of humanity may seek after the ever-present Lord. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the ever-present Lord, who does the, all these things, all God's works are known to him from eternity. Therefore, my judgment is that we not trouble those from among the nations who are turning to God but rather write them to abstain from the defilement of idols, from sexual immorality and from strangled and from blood, because in every city, from generations of old, Moses has those who proclaim him, being read in the meeting places every Sabbath day. But if you separate Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, if you separate Acts and Galatians from their roots in Torah, from the prophets, from the other writings, if you just insert a few words like church, 
whose Greek counterpart is ecclesia. And most places in the Bible, it's translated assembly. But where it refers to Yeshua's assembly, we change it to church. If you insert that word only where it, where it refers to Yeshua's assembly, and every other place you translate that word ecclesia assembly, if you insert the words New Testament rather than New Covenant, then you no longer have the rebuilding of David's fallen tent. You no longer have what Paul speaks of in Romans 11, chapter 17. You, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share the nourishing sap of the olive root. Or Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Messiah Yeshua as chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. No, not at all. What you have is you have church separated from its root, allowing all manner of detestable things within its walls. Church with rainbows. You have church with everyone saying, I believe in Jesus, but no one walking like Yeshua. Because we forgot we were to make disciples, students of Yeshua, those who walk like Yeshua, teaching them what he commanded, which are those works that are known to him from eternity being read in the meeting places every Sabbath day. There's no Moses taught in our assemblies any longer because we've alienated ourselves from the root and we're lying on the ground withering away. So we'll go through Matthew this year as we did the Torah last year. But understand... It'll make no difference. It doesn't make any difference if I start to preach about Messiah in Genesis or if I start to preach about him in Matthew. There's no difference because there's no difference. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He had his people Israel write down a set of holy scriptures for us that start with the beginning in Brashit in Genesis with prophecies of the Messiah and run right through the fulfillment of those prophecies in the Messianic writings and teach of the days ahead in the book of Revelation given to John. One God, one book, one meaning for all men. Amen? Praise the Lord. <laughs> 